0: Welcome to wherever you are. My name is Ryan McNeil in Toronto, Canada. You are listening to episode 277 of The Matinee Cast. It's the movie-loving podcast of my movie-loving website, thematinee.ca, your home for cinematic passion and perspective. Today's guest needs no introduction, but she's going to get one anyway. She is someone who I first met in a bar arguing the merits of films I loved but she hated. Someone who I wasn't sure even liked me at first, but someone who sure enough showed me that there is a lot to learn about the world from people in our orbit and who has graciously shown me and taught me so many things i have truly lost count from the value of proper character development to the power of an empathetic heart it's fair to say that i wouldn't be the critic i am or even the man i'm still trying to be without her friendship and mentorship she is a news editor at Slash Film. She's the managing editor of Fangoria. We are across the wire to Ann Arbor, Michigan, and Ariel Fisher is here. How are you, Ariel Fisher?
1: I'm like, cry a little bit. <laughs> you just, you're trying every, like the last time we did this, I think you did the same thing and you said something incredibly sweet, and I was like, oh. And now I'm like, oh shit, okay.
0: It's the whole pandemic and isolation thing that any little, uh effusion of of pure emotion just kind of like gets everybody like you're probably like me you're dialed up to 11 right now where like you know a song can just like make your heart turn into molecules to paraphrase uh before sunset you know like i i was watching the the rock and roll hall of fame induction ceremony and jennifer hudson started singing aretha franklin and i was gone like she she just got in like like four words and i was finished i was like what is wrong with me and it's just the times that we're in you know
1: oh yeah speaking speaking of the rock and roll hall of fame i was watching the other day while i was editing something at, at, at work at slash film i was watching a uh, uh when the foo fighters uh, inducted rush dave grohl talking about yeah uh neil pert and i was just sobbing yeah, yeah. and then neil pert came up and i was like <laughs> yeah
0: yeah Yep, yeah, it's it's that's the times we are in. It does not take much. So I, mm-hmm. I, I appreciate that I was able to, you know, to, to get you in the feels right off the top. But it's an easy target is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> On episode 277, we are going to be discussing The Lost Daughter. We'll be flipping the record over to play the other side. But first, we need to learn more about Ariel. This is Know Your Enemy. Ariel Fisher has been on this show multiple times. She's pretty much staff at this stage. So get comfy, folks. This is going to take a minute. On episode 112, we discussed Raiders of the Lost Ark. We learned the first film she ever saw in a theater was Home Alone. The last film she saw at the time was Chef. The worst film she'd ever seen was Legally Blonde 2. The unseen classic essential was Lawrence of Arabia. She's seen it. She hates it. The film she wished she made is Pulp Fiction. Ariel return on episode 139. We talked about Slow West. We learned the film she digs that nobody else does is burlesque. The film everybody else likes that she doesn't are 2001 A Space Odyssey and Blade Runner. The last film to make her cry was Big Hero 6. In the movie of her life, she be played by Katherine Hepburn. And the movie she was watching next was The Imitation Game. Then Ariel came back on episode 190. We argued about the Beguiled. We learned the films, plural, to make her love of film turn a corner were Annie Hall and the Purple Rose of Cairo. Her first date movie is Interview with the Vampire. Her sick day movies, plural, are The Adventure Essentials, Lord of the Rings, Princess Bride, Back to the Future, Jaws, Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade, films of that ilk. The last film to leave her speechless was Germany Pale Mother, and her film epitaph would be I went looking for my dreams outside of myself and realized it is not what the world brings to you, but what you bring to it. From Anne of Avonlea.
1: Anne of Green Gables.
0: Anne of Green Gables. My bad. On episode 205, Ariel returned to talk about Eighth Grade. We learned the film that she really digs but never wants to see again is Germany Pale Mother. The film that genuinely freaked her out were The Exorcist and The Changeling. The movie that always makes her laugh is The Heat. Her favorite movie soundtracks are Almost Famous and The Red Violin. The movie she loves but nobody else has really heard about are The Age of Innocence, Volcano, and 90 Minutes. Ariel came back on episode 225. We talked about Smart. When she goes to the theater, when we can go to a theater, she likes to sit in the middle, middle, dead center. If she could go on a date with any movie character, she would like to go on a date with Ned the Pie Maker from Pushing Daisies. The dirtiest film she's ever seen is Septic Man. Her favorite black and white movie is Laura. And the film she likes but nobody else would expect her to like is Martyrs. So it is time for the next round of questions. Ariel Fisher, if you met a person who had never seen a movie before, what film would you show them?
1: That is an exceptional question.
0: They have never seen a movie before ever. Like, Like an alien comes to earth and they have no idea of this art form, this media, this very concept of sitting in the dark and watching a story on a big bright screen. So you've got so one, you got one shot. Like not just to show them this is my favorite movie, but to say this is what this art form does.
1: You know what, Sherlock Junior. Oh,
0: interesting. Okay, why yeah, that
1: one? It's probably my favorite of his. I I love Buster Keaton mm-hmm. immensely. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how do you communicate what the what the medium is to someone who has never seen a film before? If we're going based on the idea that it's someone who has uh who doesn't necessarily speak our language who doesn't necessarily understand our customs we're t- we're going with pure you know physical dialogue so to speak we're going with pure physicality
0: yeah yeah
1: it's it's pantomime so it's easily communicated yeah and on top of that it's funny and touching and it it gives a very interesting sense of not only what film can do but what Humans can do, and what we're capable of.
0: I I really love that answer. I feel as though um, Keaton and um, to I mean to a further extent, Lloyd have got um, tamped down somewhat in in film history um, in the service of Chaplin. Like everybody and their brother mm-hmm. loves Charlie Chaplin, and and he's kind of been the silent film comedian to really endure. Um, but the there there was real genius. In what a lot of those others did, to say nothing of, of course, like the supporting cast that facilitated a lot of their ideas and and brought them to life. Um, I got to see what TIFF years and years ago, um, they would show, like they still show the Cinematech screenings as part of the festival, right? They've got like some of the older ones and they'll get somebody out there to introduce it. I got to see um, the general. Uh, on a big screen uh, in the Elgin, and that was actually the first time I'd ever seen the General. Um, so having being able to see it in full stop, and I remember listening to um, then festival director Piers Handling talk about how one of the beautiful things about Keaton was. His stories are a struggle are a struggle with objects. Whereas Chaplin is a struggle with life and people, he is a struggle with everyday objects. And that is so relatable because all of us inhabit a physical world. And, you know, we all know what it's like to bump our head on a doorframe or to you know, like or that or just just stumble and fall. So mm-hmm. having that as be this this um tangible connection between you and whoever hasn't seen a movie before, regardless of what language they speak. Um, that's a great answer. I love that.
1: Because even if you think of like if you do think of it in, in relation to someone like Chaplin, for example, because that's a like that's I mean, I remember Pearson, he did amazing work, but like that concept of, you know, Chaplin engaged with in kind of ephemeral things dealing with, you know, emotions and situations versus Keaton dealing with like also dealing with emotions and situations. Sure. But largely being anchored in physicality. Yeah. Um, you know, how do you communicate ephemeral ideas to someone? Mm-hmm. How do you how do you communicate the the intangible? Um if they don't Understand or have a basis of of understanding already.
0: Yeah, you, you use you use a house, you use many. a train, you use a camera. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. Because otherwise, you're explaining the joke before the punchline,
0: right? No, that's, and it
1: doesn't resonate. Yeah, that's a great answer.
0: I, I don't know if you've had therapy today yet or not, but uh, Ariel Fisher, what movie best embodies your personality?
1: No, that's tomorrow. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what movie best embodies my personality? That is a fascinating question.
0: And then please tell me about your relationship with your mother.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's wonderful. You've met her. She's lovely. She's
0: fantastic.
1: I could go with Call Me by Your Name, because it's after that, after seeing that movie with my mother, I came out to her as pansexual. And that movie, I saw a lot of myself in it in a way I didn't anticipate. And there are a number of movies like that where I saw a lot of myself represented, but I don't know if I would necessarily say that they best embody my personality. No joke. Uh, If I had to pick a movie that I, Eh. yeah, and I'm going to go with one. So (laughs) hold on to your butts. I'm actually sticking to one. Uh, 13 Ghosts. (laughs) It's spooky. It's goofy. It's a ton of fun. It's campy it's got great music it's got really good performances for a schlocky b movie it engages with cinema history by being a reimagining and a remake of classic horror it engages with you know the uh, the the aughts horror boom that was all kinds of fun and crazy in its own way and it's it's kind of like multiple different facets of me the the facets that overthink things and that overanalyze things for for joy and the facets that are you know deeply ingrained in and infatuated with um you know practicality and practical effects and things that are like that just make sense and that are super like engaging and you know goofiness and it's fun and it's campy and it's lovely so uh, yeah 13 ghosts you're
0: gonna make me watch that movie again aren't you
1: Wait, did you not know watch? Have you seen it?
0: Yes, I've seen it a very long time ago. I did not care for it. We argued about this.
1: I didn't. I forgot <laughs> about that. I thought we had argued. Haven't we argued also about like Deep Blue Sea?
0: I mean, we've argued about everything, really. <laughs> so, um, I, I, I. Okay, I will rewatch it because it has been a very, very long time. <laughs> I will watch it with you in mind and and do it that way. I love that answer just because I. It's it's certainly like a lot of those answers are much more of um, a lot of those answers are much more of the sexy answer. A lot of those answers are the kind of answer I anticipate on this show of, you know, like the, the you know, the um, age of innocence and call me by your name and those kinds of personal stories. I like profound. that. Uh, yeah. I, well, I like that this one, it's like, you know, <laughs> it's this real personality turducken of a weird production that has this stuffed inside of this stuffed inside of this. And it's all just, You know, juicy and delicious and bad for you. Um, Yep. Okay. Although
1: I am not implying that I am bad for anyone.
0: But you are juicy and delicious. (laughs) 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 Moving all right. (laughs) Moving right along. (laughs) Oh, this could get very interesting. Ariel Fisher, what is a movie that you hated on first watch but you eventually came to
1: enjoy? Apollo thirteen. Really. Apollo 13. Wow. No question, no hesitation. Okay. I know that one off off the off the hop. Yeah. Tell me. My my dad used to watch that one all the time. He loved it and for whatever reason when I was a little kid, I hated it. <laughs> I just I, it I don't know what it was. I don't know if it just was that I wasn't paying attention enough. I don't know if it was just that I was too young to really kind of get it. And then when I was like in my late teens, Maybe actually, no, I might've been in in like my early to mid twenties by the time I finally gave it another chance. There was also like, there was a lot of baggage around that movie in my family, like, like physically there was, we, we had, my dad had it on VHS and my brother, when he, like, this was after it came out on VHS and my brother was also a kid, he's only four years older than me. Um, he loaned it to his friend, Maury without telling our dad. Oh no. Oh wait. There's more. <laughs> and then Maury, and then Maury gave it to his sister as a birthday present. Whoops. Oh, big whoops. My dad was pissed. And like rightfully so. So that wasn't so it was just there was a lot around it. And I was just like, I don't want to deal with this. It's too much. It's a uh, movie should be fun. And I was a kid, so whatever. And then yeah, I rewatched it as like a young adult or an adult, depending on when it actually was. And I was like, this movie, this this movie's excellent. It, it was like, I was shocked or stunned somehow that Apollo 13 is an amazing film, but it's an amazing film
0: for me. It's like kind of always been there. Like I, you know, I was a teenager when it came out, it's, but at the same time, it's just one of these ones that just kind of worked its way into the fabric. Um, that when I first saw it, like, I wouldn't say I hated it, but I certainly, I was like, yeah, that, that's nice. And now as I watch it um, as a grown-up, like I'm able to look at a lot of the little indi- like individual threads within it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know it's it's interesting as a film by ron howard because he's a guy who you know kind of did some strange things with his career after that he went from being this like prestige director and that was kind of the apex of his prestigeness even though he would be like rewarded for prestigeness later on like six years later with (laughs) a beautiful mind to now he's making these kooky little like pulpy wannabe prestige movies like uh, you know whatever that moby dick adaptation was a few years ago and he I made exactly what you, you made. know he made three dan brown movies and it's so it's it's this this interesting thing of kind of not really seeing how amazing it was at the time like to say nothing of the fact that nasa did not participate right like everything we see was them having to work off of um materials because nasa was like we have no interest in reviving a mistake thanks so god speed and good luck and and <laughs> and just watching it all is like you would not know that you're not that you're watching something that was done completely like without their their cooperation um and then yeah i actually
1: I, forgot that i think i knew that but i i forgot because you because of how much you would not know that
0: yeah 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 and then yeah as, as you watching it, as watching it as an adult and watching just like the human element of oops we screwed up and we're gonna fix this because we have to mm-hmm. there is no saying we can't do this um and just being able to appreciate that as a grown-up at a time where so many times mistakes are just like that happened you know it's
1: and and also tied in with all of these other really complex ideas of you know like Kids facing having to deal with the, the notion of the mortality of their parents mm-hmm. um, and the threat of that, and you know, spouses having to deal with the inherent risks of, you know, their or their spouse's jobs or you know, just life in general and what could be gone in an instant, and, yeah. and that that whole idea. I, mean, I always think about the scene with the with the ring now in the shower, ev- like all the time. Um, and it's, there's just, there's so many little things on top of that fallibility prospect of, you know, what do you do when you make a mistake? Do you yeah. own it? Do you f- ignore it? Do you shrug it off? Whatever. If people's lives are on the line, you kind of have no choice. You have to find a solution or you have to accept it. Yeah. That's not a good way to handle things.
0: Yeah, no. but
1: like. And, and even just the notion of you're, you know, reflecting on your own mortality and everything.
0: Yeah. And I mean, these are very grown up ideas that you're bringing up. So it makes sense to me that this is one that you originally you're like, eh, and then you, you know, you you looked at it a little deeper as a grown up. That's that's a really great answer. Mm-hmm. Ariel, what is a remake or adaptation that is better than its source material?
1: The Age of Innocence, which is my all time favorite movie and one of my all time favorite books, and which I consider to be a perfect adaptation of a source material, um, even though it's not. Like pristine, a one to one copy. It captures the tone perfectly. It is, in my mind, a perfect adaptation. John Carpenter's The Thing. Mm, Okay. Because it is infinitely better than The Thing from Another World, which is fun, but it's very B, it's very campy. It was, you know, there's a lot of stuff there. It was fine. Carpenter's The Thing is exquisite. Um, And this beautiful source material to like discuss you know the the shifting paranoias of the time with the cold war and everything it's just uh, i love it i love it and last but not least uh david cronenberg's the fly
0: let us talk about the fly because I feel like I have, we haven't talked about The Fly ever on this show in 277 no. episodes. So I want to talk about that. Um, oh, like like
1: never, never? No one's talked about The Fly?
0: Don't think so. Oh, okay. I could be wrong, but I don't think so. Um, you know, uh, it's... I mean, re- the, the, the remake argument has been going on forever and ever and ever and ever. And the reason why I ask this question is, once in a very blue moon, something comes along that manages to elevate i remember i i got to ask this question to alan cumming of all people of what is it about film remakes that tends to bristle everybody when cover songs are a thing and uh revivals of shows are expected to which he said because those are part of the medium whereas film is finite and his actual answer is remaking a film feels a little bit like digging up a corpse um however Uh once in a blue moon you know you put it on the slab you throw the lightning through it and you get a very interesting monster out of reviving the corpse and i do think that the fly is one of those examples you know if i want to take that one step further i think it's because if you're gonna remake something you gotta remake something that had flaw you know that has joy and has um warmth and is uh, you know, worthy. Like, don't make something, don't remake something that's absolute garbage. Like, if something was flawed from concept, just leave it be. Just walk away, <laughs> say, that didn't work, and just try something else. But if you're looking at something that's like, you know, I see tones of this in there, or I see themes of this, or every time I look at it, I see this. And it's like, if we just kind of throw a little bit more money at it, we could probably really do it justice. Um, that's the kind of thing I think should be remade. And I think The Fly is one of those.
1: The interesting thing with that idea, though, is that that is a very subjective concept. Sure. Because what what we consider to have value may not have any value to anyone else. Uh, if you look at the original, like, have you ever seen the original The Fly or the, the original scenes. the thing from another? Okay. In both in and both the, cases. In both cases, yeah. okay. It's like they're fine. Mm-hmm. There's nothing about it that intrinsically screams this needs to be remade. Right. Rather than whether or not we think we can fix it. Cause that's, that's a bit more of a, of a what sure. kind of a question. Yep. I would posit we should be asking more of a why question for situations like that. Why would you remake this? What's the purpose of remaking this? What function does it serve? Um, but, but also like the core of it, right? when you think of what, you know, why remake the thing in the eighties, it served as a jumping off point to discuss the global paranoia that was happening around the cold war mm-hmm. right before it ended. And you know, fear of you don't know who's around you, you don't know who's who, you don't know what their allegiances are, you don't know what their motives are, everything is terrifying.
0: So why and we make the fly at the same time?
1: The fly, um, at the same time you have all of these developing things happening with uh with science and technology. Um if I'm not I, I don't remember exactly when it was that they started having serious discussions about cloning. I can't remember if it was later in the nineties. Yeah, a little bit after but, but it, there but, were but
0: you're right like like what was possible with the human body was starting to take leaps and bounds in the 80s um mm-hmm. and 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 it became this question uh it it became the age old question of whether you could or whether you should
1: and you also have all of these notions of like um you know, identity culture is starting to come to the forefront in like the late 80s, early 90s, and this, you know, really profound sense of individualism throughout all of North America. And, you know, what that says about ambition, about drive, about why we decide to do the things that we do and whether or not we should do the things that we do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Like I wouldn't, I can't think of a good time to remake uh, All About Eve, for example.
0: Sure. Yeah,
1: and also that is a damn near perfect film. Why? Like, why would you? Like, there's again, there's the why question, yeah. and like, what what would you improve on? So it's it's you know yeah it's
0: no it's it's a whole thing. Great answers, I love them. Um, last one for now. Uh, keeping in mind that it's you know about a ninety minute show. If you could bring back any artist from the dead, who do you bring back, and why?
1: Anton Yelchin. Oh yeah. I'd have to go with Anton Yelchin.
0: I think the interesting thing about Yelchin as an answer is that he died so young, um, which I think about our last episode. um, I talked with James McNally about Come On, Come On, the new film by Mm -hmm. Mike Mills starring Joaquin Phoenix and uh, Gabby Hoffman um, and a really great young actor named Woody Norman. But the interesting thing about Come On, Come On with phoenix and hoffman at the front is here are two people that we watched and they were kids you know mm-hmm. and we're now watching them be parent and basically surrogate parent and with yelchin we didn't get that far so we watched him go from being a kid to being a young adult in in movies and you know and really truly an adult um, in movies but we didn't see that next stage of his artistic output where he was the parent um, and and how he would play with somebody who was in his position that he was in when he started so like you know what a film of his that i know is not really much cared for but i have a kind of a soft spot for um is hearts in atlantis where he's playing opposite anthony hopkins we're not going to get a chance to see anton yelchin at the anthony hopkins age play opposite a young anton yelton type
1: like I, I oh god i remember the day that he died and i don't i don't Remember exactly what was going on. I think I was leaving work or something. I was just stunned, and I was so sad. I, I cried a lot. It wasn't quite as debilitating as like when Robin Williams passed away, but it felt like everyone was being robbed mm-hmm. because he had just started to really like. He had been acting, like you said, since he was a kid. He had been working his whole life, but he had only really just started getting a foothold. As like an A-lister, and not just in terms of the status, but in terms of access to other roles, yeah. access to work and yeah. performances and, and possibility. Yeah. And he had the world ahead of him. He was one of the best actors of his generation. Yeah. And
0: Underrated, I think.
1: So, so uh he, I well that's the thing. I debate the 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 underrated or properly rated discussion only because I, I feel like for the amount of exposure he had, yeah. he was adequately, you know, represented. Sure. He was adequately hyped. Yeah. But it's just, you know, like even just thinking about the fact that he had been working for a couple of seasons, if I'm not mistaken, on troll hunters right before he died, I think they were working on the third season at the time, or something like that, when he when he died, um, the idea of the, the even just the sheer prospect of him starting to work more with someone like Guillermo del Toro, yeah,
0: yeah,
1: who loves the idea of human elements in his films and how much of that wealth and and depth Yelchin brought to literally every character he had, yeah. he made Odd Thomas worth watching with his performance alone. Yeah. You know, otherwise a thin flimsy film. That's like perfectly fine. Yeah. And his performance is devastating.
0: Uh, Yeah. 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 Like full (laughs) across the board. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It's oh my God. We're agreeing. Yeah. It's crazy. Right. (laughs) Um, It's, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, we can, I've been saying um, online that for us to sit here and blame years for taking um people from us is really really selfish because it really denies the passage of time and us saying damn you 2022 because you already took betty white and you already took sydney poitier it's like you know what people we are all getting older uh, and so are they but moments like that where it's like that wasn't expected like you know, you no. know what i'm saying like those are the ones it's like how much more work would you have done and the answer in the case of yelchin is lots because he was just getting well on his way that is a great answer
1: and even just beyond that idea of like how much work would you have done it's 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 the work but it's i i always think of it more in terms of the contribution like societally and that, culturally but
0: that, yeah, I mean, that but that that applies to the people who have had their legacy already you know and that's the thing it's like don't get me wrong I am I am tremendously sad that we will have no more music or words out of Stephen Sondheim going back to the musical theater analogy it's the same as Jonathan Larson it's the difference between Mm -hmm. losing Jonathan Larson and losing losing Stephen Stephen Sondheim Sondheim, you know that's that's the thing And, and Yelchin falls into that former category those are amazing answers
1: perfect analogy i
0: tried thank you so much ariel fisher as always you bring the goods we are going to talk about a movie and i should kind of raise a little bit of a flag um the movie that we're going to talk about It doesn't really have spoilers per se but it has stuff discussed late going that one may consider a spoiler but i really feel like this is a story we need to talk about as a complete fortunately this is a netflix release so no matter where you are in the world listening to this you can watch the film uh and come on back as soon as you've seen it and listen to us talk about the lost daughter right after this yes it
1: told me said the world will turn away from but changed me I told Jesus be all right,
0: the lost daughter is directed by maggie gyllenhaal it's written by gyllenhaal based on the novel by elena ferrante it stars olivia coleman dakota johnson jesse buckley paul mescal ed harris and peter sarsgaard the lost daughter is a simple story about a woman on a journey the woman is lita and she's played by olivia coleman lita is on a holiday in greece where she happens upon another young mother named nina that's dakota johnson nina's young daughter goes briefly missing which causes the two women's paths to properly intersect And the fallout is that the young girl's doll remains missing even after the girl is found safe. The doll will be searched for throughout the film, even though we in the audience know where it is the whole time. The whole association with young motherhood sends Lita's thoughts back to her own time as a young mother, where we see her played by Jessie Buckley. It was then, as a translation scholar, that she found herself anxiety-ridden and impatient, leading to a decision that many would, and do, find shocking. The Lost Daughter is a film about looking. It wants us to look at the people we encounter, both familiar and unfamiliar. It wants us to look at the very world around us and truly take it in. Whether it's the way the water laps against the shore or the way a person speaks with just a hint of sadness in their voice, there are stories to be told if we look properly and consider things just a little bit below the surface. So, pop quiz hotshot, when you looked at The Lost Daughter, what did you see?
1: um fear really yeah the entire movie the predominant thing that I could think about is so many people shouldn't be parents and so many women are forced to be mothers
0: Hmm. Yeah. yeah and
1: the fear that goes with will I succeed at this or will I fail and it's not like taking on a work project, right? It's, it's, it's unlike any other endeavor you can, you can take on in life because whether you're adopting or you're, or you're having a child or you have a surrogate or whatever, having a, a, a small, having a human depend on you means that you are responsible for direct guiding them into becoming the adult that they're going to be. It's not about, it's not about you. Yeah. And there are so many misconceptions, you know, when are you going to give me a grandchild? Well, my having a child has nothing to do with you having grandchildren. Right. Those two are not connected because you're not the one raising the child or creating the child or paying for the child to be created in someone else's body Um, or for the adoption fees or, 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 or. It's also not you know, like, oh, well, I'm of a certain age, so my biological clock is ticking, okay, if your biological clock runs out and you're still not ready, you're not mentally ready, emotionally ready, physically ready, financially ready then then you're just not ready, and it wasn't right for you, sure. and that's it,
0: so when you say fear though, you're talking about the fear mm-hmm. of the person who is in the middle of this,
1: specifically, yes, but also generally mm-hmm. women's fear around around motherhood mm. and, and, and failure. Like I have had this internal monologue my whole life about, you know, I think I would make a really great mother. I don't think I ever want to have kids. Yeah, yeah, I think I do want to have kids, but I don't know if I could be a mother right now, maybe eventually, but what if time runs out? Like you, it's, it's this for some people like me, it's that never ending, what if, maybe, I don't know. Some people just know they want to be mothers and then they get there and they're happy being mothers and they're tired and they're exhausted and that's fine. And some people think they always want to be mothers and then they get there and they have the kid and they regret all of it. Yeah. And and those women are often vilified. Yeah. And, and, I, and I talk about this in terms of the mothers who have kids because there's this di- kind of divorced nature between women's engagement with motherhood and men's engagement with fatherhood or even just parenting in general
0: yeah which we because will and we will we will talk about that because you're right like that is all over this film like it does not surprise yeah. me one bit that you see that because that is what this film is very much trying to do um mm-hmm. uh it's it's in the book uh it's it Hall really goes out of her way to illustrate that. And I'm going to talk about, I want to talk about that in a bit. Um, You've I think read the book then? I have. Yeah. Netflix was nice <laughs> enough to send me the book. Um, nice. there's, 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 there's perks sometimes. What I saw to answer my own question, when I looked at this movie, it's something I've been more and more fascinated with as time goes on, is what is happening just outside of the frame with any given person? Because in life we put on a presentation. Whether we go to work, whether we go to church, whether we are interacting with our parents or our friends or our family, there is, you know, the outward appearance. And 99 times out of 100, nobody looks past that. They just, oh, this is how this person is presenting. that. I take it as it is. But more and more as time goes on, we are realizing that if you look just outside of the frame, if you look just outside of – I'm going to use the bad analogy of – if you look just outside of the Instagram window – Things are very, very messy and much more complicated. But the thing is, is that we are kind of conditioned not to. We are kind of conditioned just to look at the woman with the big headphones and the gray sweater and the owl glasses. And she looks smart and she looks like she's got shit to do with her day and you know whatever. We don't realize that underneath there is a whole lot of shit going on that we may or may not be privy to. And mm-hmm. we just get so full of ourselves that we don't, we don't even bother, you know, we don't bother even thinking about it. Maybe, maybe it's a defense mechanism. Cause if we thought about these things, we wouldn't get anything done. Um, mm-hmm. Or maybe some people just don't care. I don't know. But I think that this movie in a really elegant way goes out of its way to say this person, this person, this person, this person, they seem like they are one thing, whether it's, you know, Young, pretty, and successful. Whether it's quiet and sad, but there is a reason. There are other shit going on that you not see. In um, we haven't actually talked about this movie. What'd you think?
1: I felt very overwhelmed by it. Really? Actually. Okay. Not like not a. Not, it's not the type of movie that like reduced me to tears or anything. It's just I saw so many of my own anxieties
0: mm.
1: manifest. You know about the big tough questions. Like, I don't judge Olivia Coleman's character. I don't judge Lita um, for any of the decisions that she made because there is a clear cause and effect. There is a reason for every decision she made. Were they all the right one? No. Do I condone all of her decisions? Absolutely not. Um, Do I understand them? 100%. You know, there's a way to approach that. I think it's hard seeing a depiction of such profound loneliness and isolation that feels kind of like the world is indifferent to it and it's yeah it i guess kind of to bleed into that kind of conversation connected to like motherhood versus fatherhood and none of this is to put down fathers and none of this is to say that fathers don't do work or anything like that no, no. the reason why this movie is so successful is because it is it's it's rooted in the reality of 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 the society that we live in and that is that mothers can do nothing right
0: mm. and
1: are expected to be perfect but perfect by everyone else's standards except their own yeah and and it's but fathers can you know fathers can go and travel for work and that's fine mothers can't yeah and they have to be around And you know, there's there are moments of debate throughout the film while you're watching all of these these things happen while you're watching Leda's behavior when she's younger while you're watching Leda's behavior when she's older and the behavior when she's older when it's Olivia Colman is obviously the result of you know regret but and regret and loneliness and sadness and 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 uncertainty about what you would have done differently Mm -hmm. but. When she's younger, you have these doubts about whether or not she's doing things for the right reason. You know, you're leaving your children for three years. What the hell is that about? Yeah. Like, how does that, what? Then it becomes crystal clear in a moment where her husband begging her to stay. And for a split second, it seems like he's begging her to stay because he loves her and he wants her to stay. And then it becomes clear. She is little more than a nanny to him.
0: Yeah, yeah. How can you do this that, to me? Not how can you do this yep. to them? How can you do this to us? How can you yeah. do this to and me? Like, yeah.
1: Oh, can you not talk? You have this cock in your mouth or something like that, and like just going on and on and on and becoming like. And I, as someone who has been cheated on, I understand the 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 urge to just angrily scream at the person that you're that you're hurt by who has cheated on you who has who has you know broken the bonds of marriage and things like that yes 100% but at the same time you have he threatens to take the kids to her mothers and leave them there because well they're two little girls what am i supposed to do yeah you shouldn't have been a father you should not have had kids if your sole basis for relating to your children is based on there's sex and nothing more. And like even the scenes where they're in the kitchen together when they're at that like that house kind of in the country when they meet the hikers yeah, yeah. and they're like doing stuff and he's trying to shove food in her face and like, you should eat this, you should eat this, you should eat this. I don't I don't want it to leave me alone. It's like she has another child in, 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 that she has to take care of. And then the girls come running in and he's just like, yeah, 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 whatever. The same way the girls are. And she's just smothered. She's standing there. She can't breathe. She can't move. She, it, it, she's suffocating under the weight of taking care of three children. Yeah, yeah. And she only has two.
0: Yeah. I think what's really interesting about this film, so I watched it twice, um, and I read the book in between. It doesn't seem like it, because it's not the kind of movie that one would, a. and I'm going to get to my point in a second, but it also doesn't seem like the film that one should. But it is a film that actually rewards Revisit. Uh, because you start to see things in that different lens like it's easy to kind of like go back in your memory of oh this is why she a b c d e but it's really fascinating and illuminating to see it through the lens of now i see what she's looking at like this movie this movie is entirely through lita's point of view if it's not her face and how she's looking out the camera is her pov nothing happens without her there so it wants us to it wants to put us in her chair and look at the world as her and sometimes that is clear sometimes it is absolutely clear what she's seeing other times it's she's seeing this but she's also thinking about this other thing whether it's something that happened to her or whether it's, she's looking at the world as it exists and comparing it to the world that existed for her and what's possible. Uh, Like one of the first conversations she gets into is with this, with this tourist who is, you know, who is a a mother to be, and they're having this conversation, you know, about uh, as a mother of two grown kids and a mother to be, who is also like, you know, a, a, a more mature Mother, Like, you know, mothers are like expected to be pregnant in their 20s and 30s. This woman is more mid to late. Yeah, she's 42. So it's a little bit more uh, uncommon. Um, And, you know, having that conversation between the two of them and on on the surface, it just seems like it's it's that conversation of a mother with two grown kids and, and a 42 year old mother to be. Later on, we realize, oh no, 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 no! There's a whole lot more going on inside of this conversation that we just haven't been privy to yet, and that mm-hmm. is what's all over her face in that moment. Um, yeah, it's, you know, this. It's m- also connected
1: to that. Is there's this sense of obligation that mothers have to share their wealth of information Oh yeah! that you have to make yourself, you have to, you have to expose yourself to the world and lay all of your insights at every new mother's feet, because that is your role as a woman yeah. and as a mother. It it's takes cute, a village. Paid, and... Exe- exactly. And the village is, is comprised entirely of women. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's up to women to know these things yeah. and it's up to women to communicate these things to other women. It's, and it, that's, and that's where it stays. It's
0: midsummer with them all grieving together.
1: The the, the in theory yes, yes.
0: <laughs> you know and without but, the without the blood orgy going on in the barn next door
1: um, minus this but also just like
0: for midsummer by the way
1: it, seriously <laughs> but it's the like no one has to share no themselves yes no one has to share any part of themselves no and we treat motherhood as if it's a job yeah. Societally speaking, we engage with the notion of motherhood as if it is a job, and it is a lot of work. But it is not just, it's not a nine to five that you no. can clock in of and clock out of. It's not like you're starting, you know, an internship at a new, at a new place and you get to ask the previous intern. So what was this like for you? Yeah. It's different for absolutely everybody. And it's connected and ingrained to the fabric of everything that you are from that point forward. And no one has to share that much of themselves with anyone, let alone a complete stranger. No. So even the fact that she was asking her, like, what do you mean you don't remember what it was like? Why won't you tell me? Why won't you give me this information? Yeah. The Same way that she was. You know, like, what do you mean you won't move seats? Why yeah. won't you move? This is ridiculous. Yeah, exactly. It's the same idea. It's these, this interchangeable thought process behind the occupation of physical space and something that is, it's tangible, but it's also superficial. Yeah. And connecting that to the emotional impact, the life-altering process of, and the all-consuming nature of motherhood. They are not the same thing. No.
0: No. Coleman is acting her ass off in this movie as she <laughs> has done her entire career. We're at this stunning moment for this actor. Um you know, a woman who has basically been a British jobber for like 20 years. Just like her credit list is Miles yes. long. It is unbelievable the amount of work that this woman has done. Um, and now all of a sudden everybody's going like, oh, she's good. First of all, it's beautiful to see. Um, because yes. it's it's unusual. Um, you know, kind of back to what we we're talking about of, of like the the gender roles and the gender stereotypes. Um women actors tend to get noticed more when they're younger um, for mm-hmm. obvious reasons. Um, you know, the same as a, uh, um, a female singer having a hit after the age of 40, uh, a female actor becoming so prominent this late in her career um, is, is, is unusual. Um ob- usually quite deserved when, and if it happens, but with Coleman, especially, it just, it seems like something incredible to see. She has this way of, Conveying so much in her posture, in her Mm -hmm. expression, in her tone of voice. Um, she's like, she can do a lot. Like she can be, she is really funny. Uh, she is like extraordinarily funny when she wants to be. But she also just has this deep well of sadness to her that she seems to be able to draw upon on will and Mm -hmm. suits this role so well because the movie depends on her. Like if, if you miscast Lita, you're screwed. So yep. watching her work in this way um, is, is just stunning to watch.
1: Like one of the things that we're not even, that we haven't even talked about yet is the direction
0: mm-hmm.
1: and the, and the writing. Like we, I haven't we, are, read the book. we are getting there. Believe me. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I like, I haven't, I haven't read the book, but I, I kind of did the cliff's notes of it before doing this to kind of get a gist for, how is it different? How is it the same? uh l actually did a really good like l magazine actually did a really good article breaking down the you know the similarities and the differences and why it's done well and you know what works, yeah, predominantly, there's very little to pick apart about it, and it's kind of the idea that in the book she has this whole like internal monologue going on at all times. so how do you do that without narration yeah yeah, and you you have to externalize things in in that way and uh Gellinol has done an incredible job at writing the script for this and, and directing it. It looks like the work of a seasoned director, mm-hmm. and, it look, and it feels like the work of a seasoned writer. But I think more than anything, it's her connection to the material as a woman, as a mother, as a professional that gives her that extra leg up here. And it's not to say, well, only women can tell women's stories. And it's not to say, you know, you know, women can't tell other stories other than stories that pertain to women's experiences. When we create art, when we create work, and I say we generally, we not we, not we women specifically, we bring the wealth and depth of our experience to the table in every situation. There is only so much that you can bring to any given situation. This... She has brought so much of herself here with the lost daughter. And it's so breathtaking just to think about how much heart and soul and self went into this because it drips with self and not in a way that makes you think, oh, God, this was a real like, you know, uh, Like this was a a huge vanity project. She just wanted to look at herself. Not not even close.
0: No, I think actually quite the opposite. She wanted to look at a lot of people whose stories haven't been told. Because Lita is not a, a lucky penny. There are lots of women out there who Lita is their story. But when it's told, it's told without empathy. It's told vilifying them. It's told condemning them. Even if we were to sit here and say, you know what, this was a bad move. That she made mm-hmm. in her life, and even if she says it herself, this is a move I maybe shouldn't have made. It is really hard to tell that without condemnation. And Jillian Hall and Coleman and Dakota mm-hmm. and the actor who plays the 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 other mother to be, whose name I've forgotten off the top of my head. Callie.
1: Callie yeah, was her
0: name. Uh, Callie, and of course, Elena Ferrante in the first place. They find it within the text and within the subtext and within the tone of this. And that is that is the difference. That like like mm-hmm. you were saying, there is only so far you're gonna be able to take something if you don't have a context. These women, if it is not their story, they know this story. And they are able to find a context and bring it to life in a way that we rarely see.
1: Oliver Jackson and Cohen jumped into my mind while you were mm-hmm. listing off the everybody, because mm-hmm. that's I mean you 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 recognize him. You know him. Yeah, yeah. For anybody listening who may or may not realize, because it, it took me, I didn't realize it at first, and I hadn't looked at the cast list, so I didn't even know he was in this. Um, but uh, Oliver Jackson-Cohen was in The Invisible Man. He was the invisible man. And he was also in uh, The Haunting of Hill House. But he um, plays, And in
0: this movie, he plays Dakota Johnson's husband.
1: Yes. Who is kind of this force- that is just daunting and domineering, just have to add to the conversation. That man can play a villain so well, and he's actually the sweetest, nicest human being on the planet. That's usually the way it goes, right? (laughs) Oh my God. It's easy to look at this movie and think there is a vilification of men. All of the men are flawed. Yeah. But that's not to say that they're bad. People. It kind of adds to this conversation of toxic masculinity sure. and the notion of learned behavior, societally acceptable behavior. What we teach our sons, what we te- what we teach our boys, and what is considered acceptable. Who do you listen to? Who do you dismiss? Who do you disregard? Because every single time Olivia Coleman, every time Leda is trying to get these pissant little dipshits to stop being assholes and like. Stop being disruptive. Just be respectful. Just be quiet. Like, I, you lose count because it happens so often and they're always just dicks to her.
0: Well, I mean, it's funny because this whole movie is about intrusion, right? Yes. Like, this whole movie is about, like, people just crashing into your your space, uh, mm-hmm. whether it's a shared space or an individual space. And... Well, one or two times it's it you know it, it's some it, it is it is another woman. More often than not, it's it's men who are crashing into Lita's own little space.
1: And like that's the thing is that this notion of toxic masculinity extends beyond just the idea of what men teach other men and what men do in general. Women internalize misogyny all the time, mm-hmm. and some of that internalized misogyny it looks like undervaluing yourself, and it looks like like selling yourself short or, you know, recognizing that, no, I am in the middle of work as well. You can take two seconds to go and discipline your children so that I'm not the only one who does it.
0: Yeah, yeah. And
1: the, the notion of like, we listen to fathers because they're the disciplinarians and that's all they do. And we don't listen to mothers because it's their job to be around no matter what. And we can walk all over them. That the way that translates into how we interact with women. The way um, Nina acts with Leda when when everything's fine and everything seems normal, and Nina is getting what she needs out of Leda, and that is information, advice, validation um, that her thoughts that you know her child is driving her insane doesn't make her a bad person, but is actually kind of normal, you know. While she's getting all of what she needs out of Leda, that's fine. Everything's great. As soon as the tables turn a little, you're psychotic. Get away from me. And the same thing goes with with Kelly, is you know, she's trying to get what she wants out of out of Leda, and Leda is saying, No, no, that's not what's gonna happen right now. And then when she finally does give her what she wants, she tries to take more. And she tries to take more because that's what women are to so many people, is wells of resources wells of patience wells of compassion wells of endurance diligence cleaning maternal instinct and we're not we are like every other human being and that is fallible and finite and you know you see it in all of you know the men being these kind of domineering figures that are especially around Leda at the time they're all they, they they seem okay, but they're all trying to claim something they're yeah. all trying to take something yeah. and it's and and not just information but they're trying to take energy they're trying to take something of theirs
0: whether it's company whether it's an opinion or like you, you, they, yeah they energy. All, yeah they all have they all have an agenda like none of them are just coming to her just to just to share company which is funny because she's clearly traveling alone and she's clearly a person who's comfortable traveling Being alone, alone. It's like she has yeah. no problem striking up a conversation if she chooses and yet more often than not she's not the one to strike up the conversation right it's like somebody approaches her
1: and it's not just with her either we see it you see it with you know that that kind of imposition with all of the women mm-hmm. you see it with with nina and with her husband and he comes and goes as he pleases yeah he's not there all the time he comes for weekends and stuff but when he's there. He expects Nina. Yeah. And and not like, I want to spend time with you. I've missed you. I love you. Let's no. spend time together as a family. Yeah. He wants to consume her. Yeah. But the same thing is true of Will. Yeah. Who seems like this, you know, he's a nice guy and he's giving Nina everything that she wants, but he's not. He's he's taking what he wants and giving Nina more validation.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: He's, he's, he's fawning over her and worshiping her while sucking her dry. Yeah. And the same thing, even with Callie, like you're 42 years old, you've wanted to have children for your, you, you tried really, really hard to have kids. And then finally it happened for you at 42, but there's this really strange sense of like obligation to procreate coming from Callie. She's what an Italian woman from Queens. So there's, you know, it's same, the same way that there is with, you know, a lot of Jewish families. There's a lot of pressure on women to have kids yeah. that that's, that's just what you do. Yeah. Yeah. And it's. And it's all rooted in what men can take.
0: Nina as a character and the way Johnson plays her is really fascinating. Coleman is kind of a force of nature. So, uh, you know, most of this movie, it's just clear out of the way and give her the ball. But what Johnson is doing and what uh, Nina as a character is there for is really interesting in its own right because it kind of picks on the notion that Once motherhood begins, all other facets of womanhood are in service of that. So you cannot be a still young, still attractive, still wanting to feel desired and desire woman. While also care, while also caring for a toddler who has lost her doll and creates chaos, you know. So, so and
1: even beyond like wanting to be desired, like wanting to live your life and make your own, yeah. like, so do it's, your own shit. So it's like, yeah. So it's like you know what? I am
0: still whatever, late twenties, early thirties. My body still looks like this. I want to have it out on the beach and soak up the sun while my little girl is running around. Please don't come and bother me. We can't have that because it's either one or the other. No. I mean, she. Is a really interesting character because like you say, she spends a lot of the movie seeking validation uh, from Lita, uh, seeking advice, um, empathizing, we think, with this very, very complicated moment in this stranger's life.
1: And And it seems like a question mark. You're not sure if she's really empathizing. I
0: mean, it it seems at the time, if the movie stopped... 20 minutes earlier, I would say she does, but it doesn't. And we get to this point, and like not to skirt ahead to the end, but this doll that's gone missing, Lita had it, for reasons that are actually never really... Explain overtly
1: explain yeah just yeah.
0: she picked up the doll and she wanted to have the doll and she didn't think it was going to be that big deal because i mean it's a doll and why would it be um so when we get to the moment where it's like you had this doll the whole time you sent my daughter's life into chaos and by extension mine into chaos just because you were hiding this thing they've seemingly formed this bond as two stressed out mothers two young mothers and it's like no nah, there was no bond I'm just like, now I'm in it for me. It is always, always, always jarring. And you and I have both been in this position to watch somebody go off
1: Mm. and
0: it will never not catch you that much more off guard when it was somebody you thought you could trust. That is a hard place to get to as a piece of art to get us to trust with the main character and to have that trust just so summarily, taken away in, in, in a form of violence no less. It's a really, really incredible piece of acting by Johnson and the way that Jillian Hall gets her there, the way that Coleman fosters that along and and plays with it. It's it's just it's an it's unbelievable to see.
1: I was actually really pleased with Dakota Johnson. I'm not I'm not her biggest fan.
0: <laughs> no, I mean I know. she's for the longest time she just she has been. Like and I think that part of that comes down to the 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 part she has played. Um, and I mean, and we may see more of this, what we saw here, we may yeah. see more of this in the future, because she did say that she's been on a lot of sets that were terrible. And so having her go to sets where it is more of a safe space and more of an inclusive working environment may bring out this kind of work in her, we don't know.
1: No, I think she, I think she's also just kind of growing in her craft, in terms of her work. Mm-hmm. And I'm not even talking about like, the Fifty Shades of Grey stuff, which is what everybody connects her to. Or even like you know her tiny little cameo in uh,
0: Social Network,
1: and then also thinking about you know how she did in Suspiria, and and now what she's done here. There, you know, as an actress, as a as a as a performer, she has she is growing and she is doing really incredible work. How she is here is really incredible, also because she brings a really. Imperfect quality to this, as you've already said, Olivia Coleman is a force of nature. She is so natural and so effortless, which takes a hell of a lot of work. And her, she is so skilled; it's incredible. And Dakota Johnson really w- meets that level of effortlessness, not quite to the same level, because again, we're talking about like, you know, the Da Vinci mm-hmm. of. Mm-hmm of their craft you know and she's still you know johnson's still kind of an apprentice and so is literally anyone else by that matter you know comparatively speaking yeah yeah. but she holds her own in a way that is really really impressive
0: yeah to re-emphasize the the kind of twist of this movie, which we've already, t- we've already talked about it once, but we might as well just like go there is that what we eventually learn, which we did not have any idea of for the first two acts, um, which you've already touched upon is that ultimately this is a story of a woman who left her family, who decided this is not my life. This is not what I want. There are other things out there that I want to enjoy right now while I'm still emotionally there and still, uh, young enough to enjoy them she sees two people who have both like one at least has walked away from life and presumably the other has potentially as well and she's like i'm out peace sorry guys uh sorry kids uh i'm 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 taking off jesse buckley in that version of lita's life that whole realm of this story in terms of both showing how she got there like showing her as both frazzled and frayed when she's home and ambitious and wanting more when she's home and when she's on her own when she goes to this conference and on the one hand we look at like desire real desire in her eyes we also see her you know being desired and being objectified while she is there this whole corner of the story takes this entire film and elevates it into something incredible Um, the whole the whole the whole part of it is incredible jessie buckley especially is just mm-hmm. fascinating
1: she's outstanding she did such an incredible job and that's a, that's a hard weight to carry is that kind of persona so, so human like this yeah. idea of you know mothers can be multiple things and women can be multiple things and you can have you can have wants and needs that aren't physical that still deserve to be met yeah. that don't involve motherhood or being a woman, but just involved being a human being who is alive and ambitious. It's, like her career goals yeah. and her ambitions there. The imagery of, you know, women just being consumed and men just knowing to consume and not, and, and that being kind of the dichotomy that's presented in a lot of it. Her boss at that conference is thinking of her as solely there to serve him. Yeah, She is there to assist in the elevation of his career. Yeah. And then when she's suddenly getting this praise from, you know, a new big name in the industry who's in 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 their in their profession and all of a sudden she's getting all these accolades it's this kind of sheepish mm. Yeah. And then even he he even turns it into like, oh yeah, well, you know, clearly he just wants to sleep with you. Yeah. And I mean, sure, he did want to sleep with her. Can't it be both? Yeah. Why must it be one or the other? And as someone who has like Can I not be drawn things-
0: to you because you're brilliant and oh by the way, you're also gorgeous.
1: But it's that's the thing, yeah. is like this notion of 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 desire and wanting is is not just rooted in sex and phys- physical passion.
0: Like what is Starskard uses it a specific word to describe her work. And it's 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 escaping me at the moment. It's not breathtaking, but it's a very old compliment it's, it's something big yeah it's it's like, like your work it's it's not brilliant it's something very very specific and i wish i could I recall will, it at yeah. right this moment but it's like and it's either. but it's not what i love so i'm going to use breathtaking just because i have seinfeld on the brain um it's not breathtaking but i'm going to use that it's not you are breathtaking it's your work is breathtaking and yeah. it's and that is how he leads. It's like, you know, so hey boss man, he you know, he's not interested in lead up because she's cute. She is, but that's not the point. You know, why can't you accept that somebody would be drawn to a person because of their work?
1: It's the insult. It has been said about me a number of times behind my back, more often than not, which I found out about through other friends. That, you know, I only got ahead in the industry because I had big tits and a pretty face. Or that I, you know, must have, like, slept my way into a position or something. Like, people have said this about me over the last 12 plus years. And all of it is really shitty and awful. And it feels horrible. The notion that someone has no value beyond... Their contributions to a heteronormative perspective of desire, whether or not that is a prospect for that person, is so obliteratingly, nihilistically heartbreaking. It's not about being consumed. It's about being enjoyed. It's about being respected. It's about being admired. It's about all the things that you should have with engagements w- with other people. Yeah. She's consumed by her children. She's consumed by her husband. She's She is nothing but a resource to them. And she is not a resource. She is not coal. She is not firewood. She is not water. Yeah. She is not that which will sustain life. She is her own living, breathing entity and she deserves to exist without shame of wanting. Yeah. She wants to have her career. She wants to live her life. She wants to not have to be solely dependent on for everything. And if she had stayed, that would have just been her life.
0: Uh, to bring it back to what you were saying at the very beginning of this conversation of the expectations of motherhood, the story very, very easily could have said, look at this person who failed. Look at this person who was selfish at a moment where she should have been her most selfless when the kids needed her the most. You know, she didn't wait until they were like, out of out of the house to do this. This film is like, no, 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 no. This woman felt this way, for reasons that we are going to illustrate. And she made a call. And Mm -hmm. that's all you need to know, whether or not you think it was the right call, we're going to leave that up to you. We are not Mm -hmm. going to frame this um we end every uh review here on the matinee cast with a souvenir something tangible or intangible if you could take away from this movie and keep you would there is so many things both tangible and intangible in this movie uh that that, that i think would would uh make a nice little keepsakes but ariel fisher what would you keep from maggie gyllenhaal's the lost daughter if you could
1: maggie gyllenhaal's her commitment to to self
0: Think I know what you're saying. I, I don't obviously know what, I'm, what you're saying because I'm not you, um but I think I know what you're saying. In that, as a first-time storyteller, you don't know what kind of story you're going to be told, and I will be back for more stories by Maggie Gyllenhaal because I'm I'm just still so affected by the way she has told this story. It's I mean, it's not a perfect film. It's not like it's it's not like mm-hmm. one of the films that like make my top five list or top ten list of, of the year. But it is definitely a story. It's gonna stick with me.
1: If if I could take anything away from, from this movie, it would have to be the fearlessness in her pursuit of an of honest storytelling.
0: It's undervalued. Um, I mean, even in it's hard. It's hard, but that's a really good uh, souvenir. Mine is far more frivolous. Um, <laughs> early in this film, Lita sitting on the beach and she's eating ice cream, and she seems just so at peace. She seems just so in her own little space, taking such joy from something that probably cost her less than two bucks. Um, I have never wanted an ice cream cone more than I did watching Olivia Colman just sit on this Greek beach eating ice cream. Um, so that that would be mine. I just, I wanted to just sit next it's to her. not
1: frivolous at all.
0: Eating ice cream, you know, spent like... Spending just pocket change for something of pure joy. We rate here on the Matinee cast on a scale of one to four stars. Uh, Ariel Fisher, would you give Maggie Hall's The Lost Daughter?
1: I would give this a three and a half.
0: I'm a little cooler than you. I'm on a three. Um, it, it, it just Just in terms of I wanted more of it. You know, I love, it's actually, it's very economical. It's actually kind of long. It's like two hours and two minutes. It's not a long story. I just, I wanted, I wanted to be in this world a little longer. longer. Um, I, I, You know what? I know what it is. I want this to be a TV show is what I wanted. I wanted to spend eight or 10 hours in this world. Um, so, I mean, that's not a bad criticism to say, I'm no. I'm being hard on it because I want more, but I do want more. Um, and I can see how people would come away from this not enjoying it because it's not it's not a pleasant ex- experience. But I do think it's a beautiful no. and, and a worthwhile one. So hey, there we go. Um, three and a half from Ariel, three stars from me. Uh, maybe you hate this movie, maybe you love this movie. Let me know. Ryan at the matinee.ca Twitter where I am matinee underscore ca or Facebook.com/slash dark matinee. What do you think of Maggie Gyllenhaal's The Lost Daughter? We are going to take a very quick break here and flip the record over talk about some more movies after this so come on back We're back she's ariel fisher i'm ryan mcneil it's Matt cast 277 we've been talking about the lost daughter um it's the other side it's the time where we talk about further reading further viewing other uh tangents that we can go upon uh after after watching this uh wonderful little piece of film so we're gonna do it a little bit differently this time i'm gonna get us started there is one easy poll and i think it's an interesting uh, place to start the conversation so within the scope of the lost daughter there's a scene where Lita goes to the movies and what we can't really tell and what's actually kind of interestingly fudged into the corner is what she's actually watching we just know it's something old she's watching giant 1956 directed by george stevens Elizabeth taylor rock hudson james dean in one of his few film roles um it is an absolutely epic movie at over three hours 200 minutes um it's a like a huge like three generation texas oil movie um that she's watching in this little greek cinema where the you know these hooligans come in and disrupt the holy shit out of halfway through um what i love about having that as an inclusion is if you kind of tilt your head and squint the lost daughter is melodrama And I think melodrama gets uh, a bad rap. It lends itself to thoughts of swelling scores and soap opera acting and over emoting and whatnot. But melodrama has a really interesting place in film history. This is more of a subdued melodrama in that the score just you know stays quiet and the the over emoting does not come up but a lot of the very human part of that is there and having it refracted in giant is really interesting especially the scene like we get a scene in giant where elizabeth taylor is bemoaning the state of her body like she's had a child or two by that point and you can hear rock hudson calling her fat cell which to think about somebody calling Elizabeth Taylor, Fatso, you know, in in 1956 is kind of beyond comprehension. Um, But I love that it's there. I love that it gives this little wink at Giant in terms of the role, um, you know, that a woman would play in that kind of a story. And that it's the kind of movie that it doesn't come up as much when you talk about like the great films of the past um you know see even just even with the work of james dean like people seem to talk about james dean in like rebel without a cause and then just stop whereas giant really had him doing some interesting things this ties back again as well to what you were saying off the beginning of the show with anton yelchin and like what kind of work Mm -hmm. he was doing and what else he would be capable of like james dean really didn't show us a lot of what he would be capable of before he died. Um, yeah. So it's it's a it's a film that I think could make an interesting pairing for sure. Although it, between two hour two hours and two minutes of The Lost Daughter and three hours and twenty minutes of Giant, you better clear it afternoon If you are going to watch them together,
1: yeah, that's a that's a heavy duty double bill. Yeah, not that my option is is any better. I, I had mentioned this movie a little bit earlier, and I still very much think it applies, especially thematically, with this notion of like consumption and value or worth or use all about Eve. Mm. It's I, I absolutely love all about Eve. I think it's an exceptional film and I think there's a lot that kind of coincides here, especially when you consider the fact that it's a movie from the 1940s 40s 30s 40s
0: 1950 right on the line
1: 1950 why did i think it was like 44 um
0: it's not quite 50s enough it's like raging it's it's like raging bull in that way that raging bull is a 1980s movie by definition but not in presentation it's very much still a 70s movie in terms of its aesthetic and its storytelling 19 19- oh, yeah. all about eve like you could have told me that this movie is from 1946 and i would totally believe you it's night it's yeah. 1950 but it's not a 50s movie yeah. in that respect
1: yeah so it it very much has a lot of those a lot of the politics of the 1950s and w- realistically it has a lot of the politics of the 1940s mm-hmm. because it is a 1950 film it's taking you know the precedent from the decades prior right So you have a woman who is middle-aged who has never had kids uh never been married if memory serves um been very independent loved and lived her her life loved and lived her life and loved and lived her career and made that her priority you know the idea of eve being the focus of the film in 1950 all about eve becomes kind of a fantasy interpretation whereas you know, the lost daughter is, you know, the realistic portrayal of the expectations of women today versus what we wish we could have done.
0: I think the other interesting pairing between all about Eve as a choice and and the lost daughter is watching interplay between Lida and Nina and watching the interplay between Eve and Margot in the two movies yep. and how sometimes it's like, like you were saying like how, how can I take from you yep. you know for my own ends whether whether or not I am you know I'm here as a fan or I'm here as somebody who wants to learn or getting to a certain point where it's literally all about
1: Eve and even just that notion of in order to get ahead you have to consume the predecessor in order to you know gonna eat your brain and gain your gain your knowledge yeah step you know, with that bitch. Like- <laughs> pretty much
0: (laughs) (laughs) definitely Um, another one I had as a pairing again kind of playing on that melodrama although here much more of a capital M melodrama one of the first conversations you and I had on Mike was about the year of 2002 in film uh back on the do-over and one of the films that was up for best picture in 2002 is The Hours um, directed by Stephen Daltrey with um, Meryl Streep and Julianne Moore and Nicole Kidman and that film is a modern melodrama very much informed by the work of Douglas Sirk a lot of Daltrey's melodramas seem very much cut from the cloth of Douglas Sirk but that one especially cuz it's got this huge sweeping score by Philip Glass that and sometimes actually even like dwarfs the conversation and the dialogue and that's another movie where not even including the weight of the virginia wolf story that 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 the undercurrents everything else pardon the pun but this role of this mother who got to a point and just wasn't sure played by Julianne Moore uh, both as her younger self. And then again, uh, as her older self. And it's interesting that when she resurfaces in the modern storyline, she is literally referred to as the monster. I think I fear that that's a movie that we're now almost 20 years removed from and it's kind of been lost in the shuffle of films of this century, one of those best picture nominees that people have just totally forgotten about. And because it's melodramatic um, and and plays upon themes of older films, um, it just kind of got like shuffled aside. And yet I think it really still holds a lot of weight. The, mo- the further we come and the more we have these conversations of what is expected and what should be uh, the norms and what should be just realized um, in the lives of women, mothers, wives, daughters, what have you? Um, the hour seems more and more interesting as time goes on.
1: If the hours, I, I still, I've never seen it.
0: I'd be, I'd be interested. I'd be interested in what you think of the book um, by Michael Cunningham because I love his writing. Um, I'd be certainly very interested in what you think of the film. Do you have any others for another side? not okay. off the top of my head i, I do have one more um because it, again it's a, it's a melodramatic morning here on the matinee cast uh and, and <laughs> it's another film this one uh by a um by a woman behind the camera um, another one that takes place in a sunny locale another one this one that was not well received uh, but i think is actually kind of fascinating in a lot of ways did you ever see by the sea by angelina jolie
1: i did not
0: so this movie like people just did and by people i mean men did not get what she was out to do just flat out did not get it and this movie again is capital and melodrama uh certainly by the time we get to its conclusion you can see the hours in it you can see movies like all that heaven allows in it you can see a lot of antonioni in this movie it's got a lot going on in terms of like the role of men and women in marriage um Mm -hmm. there's again that that look of desire and how people look This, this movie really wants us to put wants us to be in the um the point of view of angelina jolie and how she is looking out at the world, uh, Vanessa is her her character's name, and how Vanessa is looking at the world, and looking at her husband, and looking at other people around her in this uh, uh, resort town. It's filmed. It was filmed in Malta. Oh, it's set in France, but it's Malta standing in for okay. France. Yeah, it's a film that was hated. Just
1: oh yeah, two, That much. That's what I predominantly yeah, remember.
0: Two very big, very beautiful movie stars making a movie that is taking a complicated look at marriage and 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 the, the gender roles just was not what anybody had in mind um and it's a it's a movie that i think it's got a whole lot going on that could this is one of the ones that i'm looking forward to it being reconsidered as time goes on and people going back to by the sea again just because like the locale certainly the, the having the two of them like you could you know People would be bummed out by the time you're done, but, but having it play as like a summertime <laughs> summer vacation, double feature ideas of marriage and motherhood and all, that kind of thing. It's baked right in. Um, I think they would make, they, they go well together and by go well, I really do mean bum the holy shit out of everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that is episode 277 of the Matinee cast. I'm so very thankful that Ariel Fisher was able to come by. Um, come on back on Monday, February 14th. Happy Valentine's Day, everybody. Episode 278, we will be discussing the Oscar nominees. Um, My typical guest, if you've been with the show any moment of time, you'll know who it is. And our conversations are always fantastic. Ariel's writing can be found at Fangoria and at Slash Film. Um, Do you have anything that you're working on coming up that you want to plug?
1: If you're looking for a great new subscription, you should subscribe to Fangoria magazine. Yes, you should. Go to Fangoria.com and get an annual subscription. And there will be some deals coming up soon because issue number 15 is currently in the pipes we're working on it right now so if you want that exclusive subscriber cover which last time around was a gorgeous scream cover by jason Kozlarge that had um ghostface stabbing through a stab poster which was <laughs> wonderful um yeah you better sign up for it because it's only available to subscribers other than that i have a weekly column that i share with matt donato on slash film called scariest scene ever we alternate every week. And it seems like we're on a little bit of a, a final destination kick right now. So that's, that's happening. And I've been recapping and just like that. So otherwise just tune into slash film.com. We've got lots of great stuff going up from lots of amazing writers.
0: Links in the show notes as always. Um, if people want to follow you on Twitter, where can they find you?
1: You can find me at aphis eight, a F I S
0: don't at her on my my <laughs> site is of course the for more audio content you can find back episodes by going to the slash podcasting you can also find them on spotify stitcher radio google play blueberry apple's podcasting app itunes uh pod chaser tune in they're everywhere really uh if you, and if i don't have my show where, wherever you listen to podcasts let me know and i will put it there everything gives you handy ways to subscribe for free and get alerts when new episodes drop feedback on the lost Daughter can be left in the comment section on the site you can email me ryan at matinee.ca on twitter i am matinee underscore ca at at will and uh facebook facebook.com slash dark matinee any final thoughts miss fisher
1: uh Be good to one another. It's a rough world out there right now.
0: Yes, please. (laughs) For Ariel, I'm Ryan. We'll see you at the matinee.